This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. This week's guest may not be a household name. He is in my household, but he may not be in yours, not yet at least. Uh, But he could be, and I would argue he should be. And when you listen to his resume and what he's done in life and what he's currently doing, I think, at least for me, he's the perfect person for us, and I include me in it, um, to kind of learn about some of the things that are happening uh, in in the justice realm and this intersection between justice and politics. I'm probably going to botch some of his background and hopefully he will correct me. If, if memory serves me correctly, he was an assistant United States attorney. He may well have been the United States attorney. He was a deputy attorney general in the Department of Justice. He was the acting Attorney General. He has a thriving private practice now with a great law firm, McGuire Woods. Uh, he represents, uh, he's represented some of my former colleagues when I was in Congress. Um, you know, some you may know about, others you may not know about. I'm probably not going to ask him about anything specific because I'm not sure he can answer it. And that wouldn't be fair for me to ask. He's also an expert in crisis management which I'm really interested in because the biggest crisis in my life right now is, is my putting on the golf course. I don't know whether crisis management includes that or not, but we're going to find out. George Terwilliger, how are you, George? I'm great, Trey. It's uh, terrific to, to be with you, and um, I love your show on Fox. You do a great job. Um, you, you, you always seem to manage to get to the heart of the matter, and uh, I know that the, your, your viewers are well served by that. Well, you're kind to say that. That's high praise coming from somebody with your with your resume. What part of your resume did I botch? I mean, it, it, if you if you if you want to be a federal prosecutor, I think you've done about everything you can possibly do. Well, I I was very fortunate, Trey. Um, you know, I, st- I actually started out in the Justice Department when I was in law school as a uh, a law clerk in the civil appellate section. Um, somebody called me up and said they're, they're looking for somebody. And um, it was an eye-opening education, if I can digress for just a second. Um, I sat up uh, in a secure room on the sixth floor of the Justice Department um, reviewing um, documents from the FBI's COINTELPRO, their counterintelligence program, which was very controversial, um, that had been revealed during a civil rights trial that arose in, in Chicago. And um, I got a keen look um, deep inside the FBI um, as it was in the 1970s and 1980s. This was in the late 1970s. Um, And I was fortunate enough to be hired straight out of law school to be in AUSA in part because uh, being in Washington, where the U.S. attorney is both the local and the federal prosecutor, I actually had um, six jury trials as a prosecutor before I got out of law school under that office's law students in court program. And uh, I I think you'll like this. I I sat around uh, through the interview process to be an assistant U.S. attorney. And uh, I was being interviewed by a supervisor who had this stellar resume, Harvard undergraduate, Yale Law School. And that sort of thing. And I said, you know, I, I understand I'm competing uh, with a lot of Ivy League lawyers and all that sort of thing. And this fellow said to me, yeah, but you already know how to try cases. And that's what we do here. So uh, <laughs> so I did get that job. I subsequently transferred from D.C. to Vermont when my wife got out of law school. 
And uh, several years later, through a variety of things that happened, I was um, appointed by, nominated by President Reagan to be the U.S. attorney and uh, confirmed by the Senate. And then I came back to Washington to, uh, at the request of Bill Barr, when he became acting deputy attorney general, Bill really didn't have a background in prosecution. Um, he's, he's more of a pointy-headed thinking lawyer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so we teamed up um, in the deputy's office first. I was on a detail there. And then when he became AG, as his book now <laughs> somewhat infamously said, he actually conditioned accepting it with the president by saying that he wanted me to be his deputy, to be the deputy attorney general, who actually runs the Justice Department on a day-to-day basis, as you know. And uh, that, that took a lot of courage on his part and is probably one of the greatest compliments I have ever been paid uh, that he did that. But we are a great team. We faced a lot of difficult circumstances, but we worked really well together and we're, you know, still close personal friends to this day. Well, I want to ask you a question about A.G. Barr. I think one of only two people have ever been attorney general twice, but you said something when you were going through your resume. You contrasted your background with those that went to Harvard or Yale or the Ivy League schools. When I looked at your resume, I didn't, I didn't see those schools. In D.C., they almost don't think you can be a good lawyer unless you go to one of those schools. And, and here, I'll leave myself out of it. But there's at least one guy in this conversation that didn't go to any of those schools, and he turned out pretty good. Yeah, and there's, there's lots of people. I mean, I have met some fantastic lawyers who went to Harvard and Yale and Penn and UVA and so forth. Um, and I've met some terrible lawyers that <laughs> have gone to those, those schools. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I, you know, if I had been a better student and I could have gone to Harvard, um, I don't know about Yale, but I, <laughs> I could see going to Harvard or, or to, or to UVA. Um, uh, but, um, but that it didn't work out that way for me, but it actually worked out really well because, but for that experience of um, uh, when I was at Antioch Law School, which was fully accredited and existed in Washington at the time, and they had this program with the U.S. Attorney's Office where a few of us could go in and get actual experience and try cases and so forth. Um, but for that, you know, I probably never would have been an assistant U.S. Attorney. So um, uh, life and God have a way of kind of sending things um, in, uh, in their own directions. And I, I was certainly a beneficiary of that. But I don't, you know, I think those things are important. Um, it's great to have a great uh, education and an educational resume. But, you know, if you try cases a lot, as, as you did, um, one of the things you realize is that your ability to relate to people on a jury um, and all kinds of people becomes really a critical skill. And uh, I grew up from the time I was in eighth grade till I was in college um, working for my dad, who was a civil engineer and a land surveyor. So I spent a lot of time in, uh, in bars with construction workers and um, on construction sites and, and things like that. And I think that was a great part of my education in terms of um, not just relate to people in a courtroom, but when you have to talk to witnesses from uh, a, you know, a broad uh, spectrum of life, it's really important to be able to talk to people um, in a meaningful way where um, your sincerity in talking to them is real. So in that way, I think I had a great education. You know, George, what you said is so true. I, I clerked for a federal judge who was a phenomenal trial lawyer before he went to the bench, which isn't always the case, but he was. And when I was clerking for him, he said, look, you grew up the son of a doctor playing golf at the country club. You need to go to bars. I know you don't drink, but you need to go to bars and you need to talk to real people because that's who's going to be your witnesses. That's who's going to be the victims. That's who's going to be the defendants if they testify. And he could not have been more right. I mean, you, you can be 
look, going to those elite schools may help you get your first job, but I don't know that they help you get your second job or your fourth <laughs> job or your sixth job. I mean, if you were to clerk for the Supreme Court, you probably do not want to follow the path that you and I took. But if you want to be okay in a courtroom, uh, you can do that um, without going to UVA, without going to Yale. All right, when did you realize you wanted to be a prosecutor? Um, I, I can almost tie it to a day. Um, I'm a great storyteller, so I'll, I'll tell you a very, a very quick one. When I was working as a law clerk, there was um, I was working for a woman who was trying felony cases in the Superior Court side of the U.S. Attorney's Office, and she had a case where a fellow had been arrested uh, for a kidnap in a kidnapping rape case, very serious. The woman had escaped by basically. Um, jumping out through a bathroom window from a porch, stark naked onto the street, and a taxi driver picked her up and took her to the police. And um, this guy, believe it or not, you know, this was in the, it was almost the way it is today, but before we had bail reform in the 1980s, this guy had actually been released back onto the street, which was astounding. So the, the woman I was working for, who later became famous in her own right, um, asked me to go over his conditions of release and, um, and um, see if he was adhering to all of them. And uh, make a long story short, one of his conditions was that he stay in D.C. and that he maintain full employment. Um, well, I checked what he was doing for employment um, through the pretrial services officer and discovered that he was working for a contractor that was only licensed in an adjoining state. Um, so I got put together the proof of that, put together an affidavit to that effect, gave it to my boss. She took it into court and the judge turned around and locked the guy up and he remained locked up. Um, for the next 45 years after he was convicted of those crimes. Um, and the feeling that I went home with that day that I took a bad guy off the street that wasn't going to hurt anybody else, um, I was hooked. All right. You, that story, to me, illustrates a point. I don't think a lot of our listeners, maybe they do, maybe it was just me that didn't understand it. I mean, they think of the of prosecutors as kind of only being in the court, what I just heard you say was you actually did some investigating. You actually were kind of a quasi investigator. You weren't just a mouthpiece. You actually helped put the case together. Well, that's it. That's a that's a, a very um, important insight. And in terms of people understanding what prosecutors do, when I was an AUSA, which I was for eight years, um, I loved doing investigations using the grand jury, and I was fortunate to have some really interesting ones that involved counterterrorism, um, organized crime, and so forth. And um, those, those cases are a lot of fun. Now, you're working with investigators. I had some great relationships with people in the federal law enforcement agencies as well as state and locals and uh, did some great, great cases. And that's an important part um, of the job. I will say this, though, you know, when you when you now I've been on the defense side for as long as I, I was on the other side, one of the there's a tremendous amount of responsibility that is proposed in federal prosecutors. Um, they have so much discretion um, in terms of deciding what to investigate, how long to investigate, whether to bring charges, what charges to bring and, and so forth. And um, I think one of the most difficult things it, it to do that requires self-discipline by prosecutors and really good supervision is when to stop, you know, to go, this isn't going anywhere. We're going to we're going to stop spending federal resources, taxpayer resources on this because it's not it's not producing. And, uh, you know, when I see prosecutors, as happened during Barr's uh, second go round, resigning because they disagree with a supervisory decision, um, you know, I, I'm, far as I'm concerned, good riddance to you. If you can't take being supervised, you don't belong there in the first place. 
George, if I resigned every time I had a supervisor that told me I couldn't do something, I, I would not have stayed very long at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I right. mean, we all need kind of a check and balance. All right. I, you, you, distinguished career as a prosecutor, made the switch. Some prosecutors make good defense attorneys. Some do not. You have. What's the difference between... You can be a great prosecutor and a lousy criminal defense attorney. You were good at both. What's the difference? The only difference is sort of which side of the courtroom you're on and what you're trying to accomplish. But I've used the same approach, um, so really pretty much literally in every case I've ever had. Um, I'll take a yellow legal pad and put the elements of the offense or the on the defensive side, the, the suspect offense, down one side and start listing the facts that back those those elements of the offense up on the other. And um, on the prosecution side, when you see a gap, well, that means I have to go get some evidence. That's where you may have to do some more investigation. On the defense side, you look at that and you say, well, maybe this person shouldn't be convicted because the evidence to support the, the crime is lacking that particular element. The case just isn't strong enough. And that's where you bore in as a defense attorney, but the, the, the legal skills and analytics, I think are pretty much the same. All right. This is where I'm going to try to treat you as an expert witness and not a fact witness. You, you have had some, you know, I don't want to say high profile cases because you are not a self promoter, but some of your clients have been known to me, maybe not to other listeners of the podcast, a former member of Congress, when I heard the facts, George, I'm going to be honest with you. This was years and years ago. I thought those are tough facts. Those are really tough facts from a defense standpoint. And then lo and behold, a couple of years go by and you negotiate a resolution that can only be considered favorable for the defendant. And, and I think if I have this right, it may have been some overreach on behalf of a prosecutor uh, in the state of Illinois. Do you remember the case I'm talking about? And I, I do. Uh, and um, and that was a tough case uh, for sure um, from a number of different uh, perspectives. Um, and there was overreach by the prosecutor. I, I later wrote an op ed in the Chicago Tribune about that case because they had really gotten some things editorially wrong. And I said um, one of the reasons that the case came out the way it was was because of unforced errors by the prosecutor one of which um, is just unforgivable and you can appreciate. Um, the, that prosecutor um, was found um, to have made a false statement to a judge about a material matter, um, not in my case, but in, a, in another case. And that in part led the Justice Department to take my case um, away from that prosecutor in that office and put it in the hands of prosecutors in Chicago who have a lot of experience in political corruption cases uh, to give it a second look. Um, that was a wise decision at the time, and we were able to, to negotiate something there. It's actually pretty interesting, Trey, you know, what that case came to be about. You as a former member of Congress you know that under the Constitution, Congress makes its own rules um, and enforces its own rules. And what that case started with um, was an allegation um, that first surfaced in the press that that particular member of Congress um, had decorated his office um, in a way that um, that congressional funding rules did not permit. That was a really iffy proposition. Um, one of the things was whether you could term a chandelier a piece of furniture or not. Um, on a campaign finance report, he put the purchase of a vehicle down as a transportation expense. Um, well, that was alleged to be a false statement. Um, um, both of those were alleged to be false statements, which are felonies, you know, carry serious penalties. And um, one of the legal arguments we had in that case is that prosecutors shouldn't be rewriting the rules for Congress. It's Congress's job to, to make those rules and enforce them. Um, and if you think about it, you know, there's 92 judicial districts out there. 
Con members of Congress shouldn't be at the whim of prosecutors from 92 different judicial districts to figure out what the rules are that govern their official spending and their, their campaign spending. Um, so that was an interesting and very, very difficult case. But, you know, I've, I've represented um, several members of Congress, senators, cabinet members. One of the things that's really difficult in those cases is you're not just trying to help manage legal problems. There's also a person's career and reputation at stake. And I think a lot of times prosecutors are very unmindful, um, particularly these days, or sometimes too mindful of how just the fact of an investigation alone can wreck somebody's career. You are preaching to the choir, George. I mean, if you are in elected office, I mean, you know, right now, me as a private citizen, I can say I'm not going to answer your questions, not going to cooperate. It's tough when you're on the when you're on the, the ticket, because people I don't care how many times you tell someone, you know, you're actually presumed innocent. People don't believe it. And they think, well, they wouldn't be looking if you hadn't done something wrong and you're not going to defend yourself. Therefore, I must think you're guilty. It is it is tough. I don't expect people to feel sorry for members of Congress or anyone else, but it is tough to navigate. This is the Trey Gowdy podcast. More of my conversation with George Terwilliger is coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I want to ask you two things, all right? You mentioned the role of prosecutor. There's this old Supreme Court case. It may have been Justice Sutherland that referred to prosecutors as ministers of justice. It is not their job to simply get a conviction. They can strike hard blows, but not foul blows. That was what I always was brought up to believe. I, I think it was you too. Is that still true? Or are we seeing these ambitious prosecutors that, that maybe are working for something other than justice, maybe their own, maybe their own political advancement? Well, it certainly seems that way in, in, in some cases. Um, and, you know, that goes back to, uh, to what we were discussing before, Trey, about the importance of self-restraint and supervision. Um, you know, I was a, I was a hard charging gung-ho prosecutor. I'm willing to bet you were too. Um, and, um, I believed in my cases and I, I wanted to succeed, um, in my cases, but I, you know, when I became a U.S. attorney, um, I came to understand that sometimes you have to say to people, you know, we're not going to do that. Um, that's just that that's that's just a, a step too far. And, you know, when I look at what happened um, in connection with the Mueller special counsel investigation, for example, it seems to me there were a number of instances of excess and lack of supervision there. I don't carry a brief for anybody that they were there. I didn't represent anybody in that case. Um, I thought, you know, I, in fact, Bill Barr and I discussed months and months and months um, before all that happened, how the Steele dossier was just BS. All you had to do was read the stuff and you wouldn't get a, you wouldn't get a search warrant for a parking garage based on uh, what, what was in there. Um, and, um, but, you know, when you, when you look at what happened as that, that case progressed, I mean, take, take uh, Roger Stone, for example, rousing the guy out of bed at six in the morning with CNN looking over their shoulder and, you know, his wife was a, an invalid or a semi-invalid. You know, whether I like him or I don't like him, that's not the way the federal government ought to behave. And it, I, I really think it was shameful, uh, to, be, to be honest with you. Um, Later, you know, when the sentencing issue came up and Barr countermanded the, the prosecutors in Washington and they 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 resigned there. Come on. You know, we're talking about we weren't talking about whether the guy should go to jail or not. We're talking about the difference of months in a second sentencing recommendation, which, by the way, the judge agreed with Barr. Right. Um, uh, but they're going to resign over that. Please. Come on. 
Yeah, that one, uh, you, you put your finger on kind of where we are in our culture. You're either all in or all out. And, and I'm sitting there and thinking, you know what? You shouldn't lie. Uh, that's a crime. You were convicted. I think he was convicted rather than pled guilty. But, but, but I mean, what was eight, eight years, nine years was the prosecutor's recommendation right. on sentence. I never met a judge that cared what I thought the Senate should be. Maybe you appeared in front of different judges. My judges thought that that was their job was to sentence people, not mine. So, I mean, you're, you're going to resign because somebody doesn't get nine years in a 1001 case and, and only gets two years. I, I, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's, you know, you, 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 you're putting your finger on a great point there and about, you know, your role in the job. Um, Judge Reggie Walton in Washington, um, he and I were colleagues in the U.S. Attorney's Office way back when. Um, and uh, I've always thought a great deal of Reggie. And um, when, uh, you know, in the Valerie Plain case, uh, when there was a prosecution in which um, President Bush 43 later commuted the sentence um, that Reggie had imposed. Um, I forget whether it was a pardon or a commutation. I think it was a commutation um, um, of Cheney's chief of staff. And uh, Reggie's only comment at the time was, I did my job and the president did his. <laughs> <laughs> it requires humility to know where your job ends, though. And uh, history is not replete with instances of people who just want to stay within their own kind of boundaries. All right. I want to I want to pivot and ask you. And this is a selfish question, because every time I would go to the grocery store on Saturday morning, someone would ask me when I was in Congress, why haven't you put this person in jail? Why haven't you put that person in jail? And I'm trying to explain to them that was my old job. I, I, I don't Congress cannot do that. I don't know that our, you know, fellow citizens all understand the distinction uh, between what Congress can do and what the executive branch can do, and I'm and I'm almost positive they don't understand the difference between congressional investigations and executive branch investigations. What do you see the differences? You know, when Congress is quote investigating something versus when the U.S. Attorney is investigating something, what are the differences that you would tell folks if you were teaching a class to the country? Uh, that's a great question, because I do think there's a lot of confusion. And I think the confusion is growing for reasons I'll, I'll get back to in a minute. But um, uh, in part, you know, answering a question like that or addressing that topic, Trey, is kind of like doing an autopsy on a live body, um, because what Congress does in investigations is continuing uh, to evolve and become more involved. But you know, it, I, I saw a, uh, a statistic the other day that I just found um, shocking and very sad. It said that 22% of the people in our population in the United States today in 2022 cannot name a single branch of government. I mean, think about that. They can't name a single branch of government. So how in hell are they supposed to even begin to understand the difference in function between the branches of government? Um, so, you know, at the most elemental level, um, you know, Congress makes the laws and the, the executive branch enforces them. Um, the Supreme Court has long recognized that Congress has a certain level of an investigative function um, that is needed to gather facts to support its legislative function. But just very recently in the, in the Mazur's case, which involved you know, Trump's uh, um, uh, accountant's papers, um, in the Mazur's case, the court laid out pretty clearly some things that Congress can't do when investigating. They can't investigate for the sake of investigating because that's a law enforcement function that belongs to the Department of Justice. They can't investigate for the sake of exposure, which really means name and shame. Um, and they do a fair amount of, of, of that. Um, and they can't, they can't investigate without a legitimate legislative purpose. You know, what, what is it that they're trying to do? 
So, I, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I represent a very prominent witness um, tangled up with this January 6th riot invest select committee that's investigating. Um, so what, you know, what are they doing in that case? Do you know that the resolution that created the January 6th committee prohibits that committee from marking up any legislation? So it's pretty hard to see what their legitimate legislative purpose is if, uh, if they can't even mark up legislation. Now, they're, you know, in fairness, their answer to that is, well, the, the, our work product will inform other legislation and so forth. But when you have um, prominent members of that committee out accusing people of criminal violations, which is exactly what they're doing, it's all there on, on the public record, and aiming towards you know eight primetime hearings in June to be followed by the mother of all hearings um, in September, oh, you know, about 10 weeks before an election, um, you, you know, I, if you don't have to be cynical to, to have some doubts about what's going on there. Well, thank God, George, I am cynical. And, and I, and I was there and on a daily basis, I was asked, are you dragging your feet? So this investigation kind of peaks during the election cycle. I was asked that on an hourly basis by the DC media. I don't hear that question being asked of the other side, which leads me to another question. You've been in and around Washington for decades now. Has the media changed? Has the role of the media changed? And I'm going to connect that to your friend and former boss, Bill Barr. He was the AG twice. And he's so much of a gentleman. I always try to get him to say, that's the biggest difference in the two times I was AG, is the media headwind. He won't quite say that, but I know it's true. Have you noticed the media changing? Yeah, no, it's it's it is absolutely true. Um, uh, I, I'll just give you an example. Um, that that House committee in in our lawsuit made a filing two weeks ago that was front page news all over the place, and the chairman and uh, another member of the committee made extrajudicial statements about what the filing was. We made a filing this past Friday that rebuts much of what uh, they put in their their motion for judgment in the case, asking for judgment ourselves. That was filed on Friday. Not one line of reporting about it as of this morning. Um, so you know, and 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 the, so the, the difference really is, Trey. Look, the new the news media leans hard left. There's just no no two ways about it. And um, not everybody. I mean, there are, there are still people out there. I could name names of people who I think work really hard. I'll, I'll give you one: a guy I've known for for almost forty years, Pierre Thomas at ABC. I think Pierre Thomas works very hard um, to be as objective as as he can. Um, but many others um, make no pretense. Judy Woodruff at PBS is somebody else who I think you know. I think. Judy has liberal views personally, but I think she she works pretty hard at being there. Part of it also is that the line between journalism and commentary has really become blurred. Um, and, um, you know, Fox, Fox News has been a wonderful thing. I used to appear on Fox News all the time when you said I'm not a household name and I'm not on television. That's true in this generation. Um, but when I when uh, um 30 years ago, when the Oklahoma City bombing happened, CNN hired me as a paid commentator to sit on the set with a great journalist, Frank Sesno in Washington, and provide commentary on that investigation in case as it unfolded. I used to do a lot of TV, but to be honest, I just stopped um, because I too often felt like a, a foil for a mouthpiece, you know, who was on the other side of the, of the interview process. Um, I, you know, I don't want to go on TV and just shout back and forth at people. Um, if somebody wants to have a serious conversation, um, that's, that's a different story. So I kind maybe I'm becoming a curmudgeonly old man, but, uh, but I'm there, but it really is different. I don't think, um, I don't think the balance of views gets a fair shake from the, the majority 
of the media. And that, that makes it really hard to, if you're in government especially, um, to make reasoned substantive discussions. Because if you know, um, if you do something that opens you to even a little bit of criticism from the other side, you're gonna get it. And you will never ever, you know, get a balanced coverage of, of something you're trying to do for, for the right reasons. Secondly, um, I think that citizen activism um, has changed in a, in a very big way. Um, you know, when you think of uh, marches on Washington, demonstrations in Washington and elsewhere, um, those were good things. They had a point. You know, Mar Martin Luther King did this country a huge favor by making it confront certain things. And, and to this day, I mean, can you, can you imagine if Martin Luther King were alive today and said a person should be judged by the quality of their character, not the color of their skin? I almost think that half the, the people who call themselves civil rights advocates would laugh them out of the room today because now we want to teach um, not color blindness, but color sensitivity um, left and right. And, and that's pervaded. Um, that activism has forced the media even, even more um, to the left. And now uh, we have things, you know, demonstrations outside the, the homes of judges. That's nuts. That is really nuts. And I think of all the, the screw ups that the Biden administration has had, Joe Biden personally bears responsibility for number one, not condemning that leak from the Supreme Court loud and strong when, when it first came out and telling people do not go to their houses, stay away. Yeah, I, I put what you just said under the general heading of relativism, that, that as long as we benefit from what someone is doing, it's OK. And if we don't benefit, it's not OK. And I don't think that's why you went in uh, to prosecution. It's certainly not why I went into it. I mean, I, I like working for a lady that wears a blindfold. I, I thought that was really cool that you don't know who is in front of you. So I'm going to demote you. I'm going to put you over Congress and you write the rules for congressional investigations. Because one thing that frustrated me, George, is I saw some of my Republican colleagues have a different kind of rule for impeachment um, if they wanted to impeach someone than if they were defending it. And they had a different rule for access to witnesses and documents depending on who the witness and the documents were. And I can't live that way. I, I, I just have to have one set of rules. So if you were drafting the investigative rules for Congress, what would they look like? Well, first of all, I mean, uh, go back to House, uh, the House resolution that created the January 6th committee. You know from your own experience in Congress, Trey, that one of the most important elements of the whole uh, workings, particularly in the House, is minority participation. There's no minority participation on that committee, and thus the leavening influence on excess is completely lost. Um, one of the points where we just made in court is um, their subpoenas are ineffective because the resolution requires consultation with the ranking member before the chairman can issue a subpoena. Well, there is no ranking member. They just blow by that. You know? Oh, never mind. We don't need a ranking member after all. So I'll just issue the subpoenas without conforming to the requirements of the resolution. Um, that, that sort of, um, um, uh, um, hypocrisy, really, of what that you were referring to of two sets of rules. Look at what happened in, in, I think, your own experience when you were on or chairing the Government Reform and Oversight Committee. Um, if I recall correctly, um, I don't hear anything from all these people now that want to, you know, put um, uh, witnesses who um, have not cooperated with the January 6th committee in jail. I don't hear any of them talking about an attorney general of the United States um, who refused to comply um, with, uh, with a subpoena to turn over documents and who was referred for contempt of Congress um, that went nowhere, um, nowhere at all. That's the attorney general. 
Um, but, you know, we, we don't hear that when when the sort of pros and cons of some of these these matters are discussed. Um, it's part of that. Yeah, you, you chalk up to politics. You know, people are going to make the best case politically they can for for what they're doing. Uh, but part of it leads the people, which is who we really ought to be concerned about, um, leads the people to see that hypocrisy. And even if they don't understand it, you know, it's sort of the depth of somebody like you, Ken, that was actually there. They get it. You know, they get it. And it hurts the credibility of the institution of Congress and the institution of government in, in general. And, and that's a bad thing. Yeah, I, I'm old and my memory is is frail. I, I think Democrats actually walked off the floor of the House in protest of that contempt vote. Uh, and of course, the media thought it was the greatest thing in the world that they would, yeah. you know, absent themselves from the chamber. And again, I, I just I, I, maybe I'm a simple minded guy, George. I just I like one set of rules and it doesn't really matter whether it's your friend or foe. I mean, that's what I loved about our old job is is I, there were no friends or foes. There's there's right. just trying to follow the facts. All right. I don't want to get too heavy. I'm going to let you go with a couple of questions. Well, let me touch on false statement. The FBI seems to be bringing a lot of 1001 cases, even when there's like no underlying crime. And I can tell you in six years, George, I didn't do a single one. I mean, I'm sure I had people that were less than candid with me. I was more focused on the broader crime, whether it's a carjacking, kidnapping. I'm not minimizing 1001s. I'm just saying that just seems to be a lot of what we're getting in these investigations. I mean, what's your take on it? I'm going to give you a chance to tell me I'm wrong and they really are important and I shouldn't you know, look down on them. What's your take on it? Well, I, I, I'd make two points. One, just for the people's general benefit, 18 U.S.C. 1001, the false statement statute says, if you're talking to a federal officer, a federal representative of a federal agency, and you make a statement that is material to what that agency does, um, and, and that statement is false, including by being incomplete in a way that would make it seem more or less true, that that's a felony for which you can be convicted and go to jail. So that that's obviously one of those statutes, Trey, that you and I used to prosecute. It is so broad. It is so broad. I remember I represented an oil company um, in a false statement investigation where the issue was whether they were accurate, accurately reporting to Platts Oil Graham News um, the price of crude oil in certain trading centers um, because um, Platts Oil Graham News was in turn relied upon by federal agencies to determine certain crude oil prices and royalties and so forth. Um, fortunately, that one didn't go anywhere. Um, but it's a very, very broad statute. So is the mail fraud statute. So is 18 U.S.C. 371 in its second part, conspiracy to defraud the United States by impeding or impairing uh, the work of a federal agency. The, and to me, my take on this is the broader the statute, you know, the more potential reach that it has, the more exacting the decision to investigate and prosecute needs to be. And that's what I think is is getting more and more lost and doesn't get the attention that it deserves, that somebody is not sitting down and going, wait a minute, you know, just because we have a howitzer doesn't mean we have to use it. You know, maybe a rifle shot would be would be more um, in order here, figuratively speaking, of course. Um, but uh, I think I think that's there. I think with that statute. Um, it is subject to abuse. And to kind of knit this back together to something else, that's what makes supervision important. You know, that's why you need a U.S. attorney. Judges don't supervise what gets prosecuted. You know, that's, that is totally up to, to the, the prosecution. Um, and that's why, you know, senior prosecutors, people who have been around for a while, and U.S. attorneys themselves um, need to need to go. Wait a minute, you know. Um, just because we can doesn't mean we should. Last serious question, then I'm gonna let you go with uh, with three fun little questions. 
Bill Barr, um, Attorney General twice. Uh, I think one of only two people that have done that. I did not know him his first time around. He's a little bit older than I am. But my guess is Bill Barr did not change a lot from the first time to the second time. He may have been unanimously confirmed the first time where it was a little more of a fight the second. But it seems like the environment changed a lot from the first time to the second time. Is that a fair assessment? Well, no, no question. And and in fairness, you know, you have to look at that um, if you if you try to be objective from both sides. Um, Donald Trump changed the political environment in Washington in a big way. Um, he was a disruptor, <laughs> as the as the expression goes these days, um, in some ways, really for the good, um, in some ways, not so good. Um but what, what that did in part, and one of the, I think, the downsides of Trump the disruptor um, was it, it let the likes of somebody like Adam Schiff um, uh, licensed excess, you know, by, by people in opposition. Um, and when leaders become excessive in their rhetoric on both sides, frankly, um, I think that gets people worked up um, in a way that's that's not healthy. Look, Trey, I you know I had the great fortune when I was in government and in private practice as well to travel around this country extensively um, and meet all kinds of people. Um, one of the advantages of not being a household name is you can sit down next to somebody on an airplane and strike up a conversation and uh, and and have it be real. Um, I, you know, the vast majority of this country, a working majority, I think it's actually somewhere over 60%, maybe even, even two thirds are people of common sense that lean a little left or right. Um, but they're not at the extremes that we hear about all the time. Um, they want to live their lives. If they have families, they want to make life better for their children than it was for them. They want their government to at least within, reason, um, be capable and do things right, you know, not screw up the border and baby formula and uh, the way they are um, right now. And, um, and those, those are the good, solid Americans that are, are out there. And I think what, what that was there when Bill was there before, and it's there now. The difference is that the loudest voices, um, the shrillest accusations, um, the, the, the deepest personal cuts um, are what get attention and get media attention these days. And it makes it very hard. You know, when you're attacked on a personal basis, when your family is, is attacked um, because of a position that, that you might take, um, that, that is not healthy. It's outrageous. And you know what it's going to cause? Um, it's going to cause good people to say, no, thanks. I'm not going there. I think it's already causing that. I mean, I, I look at some of the colleagues I respected the most and, and, and they're gone. They, they have no interest in sticking that out. I want to ask you about one that, that is still there. I want you to assume that Tim Scott at some point in the future is the president of the United States. And he calls you and says, all right, George, I can't afford you. You make too much money in private practice. I know you're not going to come back and do it, but what are the qualities I should look for in an attorney general? Well, I, I knew president Trump used to get upset because he said Eric Holder and president Obama were really good friends. And, and Bobby Kennedy, you know, was, was the brother to, to, to the president. That's a close connection. On the other hand, I don't know that you should hire someone that you don't know at all to be the attorney general. So what would you tell President-elect Tim Scott? These are the qualities you are looking for in an attorney general. Well, first of all, my friend, Mr. Gowdy, you presume too much. Um, he could afford me and I'd come back. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it's a great question. Um, and it's a question that that really um, goes to the heart of the dual roles of the attorney general. On the one hand, the attorney general is a counselor in the, in the truest sense of the word to the president. That's part of his statutory and constitutional, constitutional role. 
And there's nothing wrong with an attorney general um, who is uh, is turning the Justice Department in the direction of securing the administration's priorities, whether that be border control or ending the scourge of drugs or um, coming down hard with an appropriate federal response to violent crime. Those are all all good things to do. Where, where the rubber meets the road in the qualities of an attorney general and what the attorney general in turn, him or herself, demands of the Justice Department is no politics in our prosecutive decisions. Civil cases, you know, maybe different. Maybe we want to protect the spotted owl. Maybe we don't. Um, but in criminal cases, no politics. Um, we, we call those just like we see them based on the facts and the law and the evidence. So I would tell, I would tell any president elect, what you want in an attorney general, number one, is somebody that you know is going to adhere to that principle. Um, no politics in the prosecution function. Um, number two, you need somebody who really understands the Justice Department. I, you know, whenever I see names floated for people who could come in and be AG, and they've never spent a day in the Justice Department before, um, it, it just it, that's not going to work. Um, it is so huge when you think about the the functions. How many, you know, uh, we call them offices, boards, and divisions uh, there are. When I was the deputy attorney general, I supervised the director of the FBI, the, the administrator of DEA, the head of the Bureau of Prisons, um, six uh, assistant attorney generals that ran the litigating divisions, and 93 U.S. attorneys out there, each of which thought he was a god king in his district. Um, so um, it's, you know, being the AG or being the deputy, for that matter, is a huge job. So bring somebody in who understands the place and and knows how to how to work the levers to, to make it succeed. And then third, because public confidence in the attorney general is so important. Um, yeah, I think you have to you have to have somebody who's got a history of integrity. You can't just you can't guess at it. Um, it's got to be somebody who has conducted themselves professionally um, at a level that that uh, they're that, that you as the president appointing them can be in, in assured of their integrity. And I'll be honest with you, I've known Merrick Garland a long time. Um, I consider him a friend. Um, I think he mostly fits the, the bill on, on that stuff. I think if there's a question about him right now is whether he is perhaps the way judges sometimes are, um, over deliberative um, about some things. Um, he's let some things happen that appear to be um, uh, sort of fit a political agenda and, and, you know, has been criticized on the Republican and the, the right for that. I take all that with a grain of salt, because like I said, you know, if he wants to bring voting rights cases because that's important to this administration, I may not agree with that. It may look political, but I think, you know, that's in the zone of, of, of appropriate discretion. But if he's going to prosecute people because um, it, it suits a political agenda, which I have not seen them do, then that's another story. Great advice. I hope some uh, potential president is listening uh, as you go through the qualities we need uh, in an AG. We're going to pause right there. More of my conversation with George Terwilliger next. All right. Judges used to get mad at me because I'd always say just a couple more questions and then an hour would go by. These really are my last three. Dream job that you never took. What's what's something you wish you had done, but you but you haven't done yet? Director of the FBI. Um, really? Yes, I really I really wanted that job in the summer of two thousand one when uh, President uh, Bush forty three uh, gave it to Bob Mueller. It was down to the two of us. Um, and, uh, and I really thought I'd prepared my whole life, um, to have that, that job. I will say that, um, during the interview process for that, I won't say with whom, but I was in the white house and, uh, I was asked, what do you think the top three priorities of the FBI should be? And this was in July of 2001. And I said, terrorism, terrorism, and information systems. And information systems is only important insofar as it goes to terrorism. Um, I like to believe I was right about that um, at the time. 
Um, I subsequently, I don't know if I've ever said this publicly before, I turned that job down more recently. And um, uh, I regret that now. I wish, I wish I had, in fact, taken it. The reason I turned it down actually goes a lot to the question you were asking me before about the change in environment. I really, I soul searched and I thought, you know, given all the water that's sort of under the bridge, that's me at this point in terms of the cases I've been involved in, my political involvement, I'm not sure I am the right guy who can fix the FBI after um, I won't name names, but after it got really, really screwed up, um, that I may not be the right person. I, I wish now I had taken that one on. And that was my dream job. Well, since you told me something you haven't said, and I will tell you something I haven't said, I don't think I was a serious candidate at all. I think it was just a, a kind of a courtesy phone call. But I remember telling the person that called me, uh, you can do better. Um, and, and it's not that I didn't want it. And it's not that I didn't think I could be fair. I wasn't sure that people would perceive it as fair. And I think in that, job, in that job, you got to be both fair and perceived as fair. And it's hard to wash the R and the D off uh, once you get one on you. Just like yeah. being a judge, it's hard to wash it off. So, I don't know. Who knows? You may have a chance before it's all said and done. You, you, you're, you're still young and spry. You may have a chance before it's said and done. Well, I hope I'm spry, but I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> What's a book that changed your life? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, hard to pick out um, just one. I guess I, I would I would say this as a very very young person. I read a book um, by um, Adela Rogers St. John about her father, um, who was a renowned uh, defense lawyer. And um, it's what I probably read that book when I was about 13 or 14 years old. And it's what really propelled me towards law school um, over the years. I just, um, I, I think if you are a person, who um, likes to believe, as I do, and I think you do, Trey, from the things you've said, that, that um, having a sense of justice is important um, in terms of not just how you conduct yourself, but how you deal with others in life. Um, uh, for all its flaws um, and for all the difficulties there is in administering it, justice is still found in our legal system. And I think that's what what sent me that way. Um, I think you're right. I think when all the other institutions seem to be crumbling around us, I still have hope that that one can keep us, keep us together. All right. You know, I'll just, I'll make a note on that. It's something that you didn't ask me about, but I think is, is important for people to appreciate. And maybe, you know, um, maybe we can get this to change. I really, really regret how we talk about Trump judges and Clinton judges and Obama oh, yeah. judges today. Um, I, you know, when I, when I was coming up um, and in court a lot, trying cases 30 and 40 years ago, um, I never thought of a judge as, you know, the creature of the president who appointed them. That's why they get like federal judges. That's why they get lifetime appointments. And I'm, I'm a big adherent. Um, I told Don Evans the day after the, the election um, in, uh, in 2000, when we started talking about maybe going to court over the Florida recount, you know, look, tell me the judge and I'll give you the rule. Um, you know, uh, judges are predictable to a certain extent, but we shouldn't base those predictions based on, on who appoints them. And they shouldn't think that way. I either did a podcast or I did a television monologue on that very point. The media was decrying a certain Republican president for politicizing the judiciary. And I said, well, wait a minute. Every article I read says Obama appointed judge, Bush appointed judge. I mean, it's almost always in the first sentence. So it's not just the politicians that politicize the judiciary. Quit telling us who put them on the bench. But I noticed they have not done that. All right. The very, very, very last question. 
what's a prosecution you wish you had been on the team, but either weren't at DOJ or weren't on that pro- – what's a prosecution you sit there and think, I would have loved to have been part of that team? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I have to think about that a little bit. Um, I would guess the 9-11 prosecutions. I mean, I wish, I wish there had been more than this whole – um, experiment in military justice at Guantanamo has been an ultimate failure. Um, but the Masawi case, which was, you know, expertly tried um, in the Eastern District of Virginia um, and convicted, you know, the so-called um, the one hijacker, would-be hijacker that, that went to trial. Um, I just, um, you know, it do- doesn't um, uh, 9-11 seem like uh, another lifetime ago now. Um, but that danger is still out there um, in a big way. So I worked on a lot of a lot of counterterrorism cases, um, both you know at the at the line level and when I was in the in the front office at justice. And um, the vigilance that we need to have on terrorism matters has not abated. So I would have welcomed any opportunity um, to work on uh, the follow-up investigation and prosecution of the 9/11 cases. I actually think, um, and you know, I may have disagreed with uh, certain structural things, but I actually think the FBI um, and the government in general did a damn good job of. of making sure there wasn't another 9-11, which there easily, easily could have been. Um, And I I hope that we are not losing that vigilance because this isn't a matter of great political or public attention today. The the danger's still out there, the risk is there. Um, I remember talking with a couple of people that were currently in government when COVID first hit and thinking and discussing, you know, there are terrorists out there who are looking at what this uh, infectious agent has done to our country going, wow, um, another weapon. George Terwilliger, uh, incredible career. Uh, it's not over. I don't mean to talk about it like you're retiring. <laughs> uh, it's, been, it's been an amazing journey. It, Great prosecutor, thriving defense practice now, crisis management. That's a new phrase, but I think you also do a little bit of that. I can't thank you enough. I could listen to you all day and I'm sure you said, I'm sure you're sitting there thinking, well, it's been a good part of my day. You won't quit asking me questions, but uh, I find I it all fascinating. Great, great pleasure to be with you, Trey. And um, I have been blessed to um, enjoy a tremendous amount of opportunity that America has brought to me and and to my family. Um, You know, I have three children, one of whom himself served as an AUSA and um, a U.S. attorney, a presidentially appointed U.S. attorney. Um, And um, another one who's uh, got a Ph.D., another one who's working on a Ph.D. and um, cares for kids in the public schools. So I uh, I've been blessed in in so many ways. And I I will tell you that um, you're not going to remember this. This is how we'll we'll close out. Um, The first time you and I met was when you were in Congress. And uh, I think it was the crime subcommittee of the of the House Judiciary Committee. And I was on a panel of witnesses. And uh, and there's a transcript somewhere that will bear this out. Um, you you went to ask me a question and you said, Professor Terwilliger. And I said, excuse me, Mr. Gowdy, but I've been accused of being a lot of things, but an <laughs> academic isn't one of them. <laughs> You're so smart. I just, I figured you must be a professor, adjunct professor somewhere. I mean, they let John Radcliffe teach in school. So I figured you were teaching somewhere. I apologize for that. I hope you have not carried that. Oh, no, no apology necessary. What I was going to say, and, you know, you and I have talked a few times over the years about some things, um, meeting somebody like you willing to come and serve in Congress and and, uh, get involved has been a refreshing thing to me, particularly at the time all that was going on. And I hope there's more to your stellar career 
um, yet in, in public service. So great to be with you. Likewise, we got to get you on television. You got a face for television, not for podcasts. So we got to get <laughs> you back on TV when the time is right. Okay. Well, I'd love to join you. All right. God bless you, George Terwilliger. Thank God you for your you service to our country. And thank you for giving us an hour plus of your time. Don't send me a bill. <laughs> no, no problem. Thank you for right. having yes, me. Yes, sir. A pleasure. Take care, thank- Trey. Yes, sir. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for spending another Tuesday with Trey. Please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast on Apple Podcast or at foxnewspodcast.com. You've been listening to the Trey Gowdy Podcast on the Fox News Podcast Network. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.